listening to BuddhistGeeks.com. October 8th, 2007. Episode 40 How Do You Sell the Dharma? In our final segment with meditation instructor Ethan Nick Dern, he shares his perspective on selling the Dharma, transforming culture, the Shambhala tradition, and the need for more Dharma teachers who aren't necessarily enlightened. This is part three of a three part series. This episode of Buddhist Geeks is sponsored by the Do No Harm Movement. To find out more about the Do No Harm Movement and to receive a free Do No Harm bumper sticker and wristband, please visit www.donoharm.us. From a certain point of view, spirituality is having the conversation how do you avoid selling out? Where the rest of the world is just taking selling out sell as out? a given. Where do I sign? And so the conversations aren't on equal terms, but the spiritual world relies entirely on the secular material market world for its. You know, even if you're running a not-for-profit, where does your money come from? Right. It comes from the for-profit world. There's, there's no way around that interdependence. And so the spiritual world hasn't really dove into this world. It's still setting itself up as this kind of countercultural thing, which isn't going to work because there's no other than like Burning Man, which is a corporate entity too, there's no place that you can actually go to be countercultural. That would be kind of counterintuitive, wouldn't it, though? If you had like a counterculture place, right. it'd still be counterculture. You have to find out who's paying the bills. And I make that point. There's a chapter in the book about right livelihood. And, you know, I use this really brilliant onion fake newspaper headline. Marxist student has capitalist parents. And it's just all about revolutionary at a American university. Parents are, you know, work for whoever they work for, but they're, you know, tied into the world that he's trying to counter. And that's something, you know, you found a lot about activism at universities was if you trace back who's paying the bill for the protest against sweatshop labor, it's the corporations you're protesting. And those connections are always there. And if you're interested in the awareness of interdependence, you draw those connections. Your awareness kind of naturally spreads its tentacles out. And so, The conclusion I come to at the end of the book is that there's no, there's no way to counter culture. You have to transform it, and that means. And this is something that it's interesting because in a lot of ways, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, I, I don't think I would have been a student of his if I was around at that time. He's too weird and ethereal in some ways for me, but in so many ways he's such a huge influence because what he said to his students is you you have to actually dive into. So. One of my meditation mentors, Acharya Michael Greenleaf, was, tells this story about going in for an interview with Trungpa Rinpoche when he was 19 and he was about to go to college and he was already a student of Trungpa Rinpoche and he said, you know, I really want to go to college and study Buddhism and Trungpa Rinpoche just looked at him and goes, I think you should study business. So he's, he's clearly telling people that they need to not create some spiritual enclave that's separate from the rest of the world. And I think, you know, the interesting thing about our generation is that we're so marketed to that whatever counterculture has been produced is in a way just produced so that it can be sold back to us at retail price. Oh, okay, so you're into yoga now. Well, you know, there's every person I see doing yoga now, Lululemon, like 
took over like in the last year and it's oh so that you're doing something different from the mainstream well yeah but it has <laughs> the pants have a I don't know how much is 80 bucks $80 price tag right which is interesting so then that gets absorbed into that market and the people who are dharmic say can we please have three dollars whereas Lululemon figured out a way to get into that yeah. and just said the price is eighty dollars yeah. thank you very much as a result whatever the person who owns Lululemon and the shareholders they get to decide what happens in the world and do you think it's inevitable that that a Lululemon will emerge for meditators and for Buddhists I think it's harder and the thing that I think is harder, you know, in terms of selling the Dharma, and I mean selling it in the positive sense, as something that's good for people to do. The thing that makes it harder is something that, it's a quote that my friend Noah Levine uses a lot that's attributed to the Dalai Lama. I've never seen where the Dalai Lama says it, but, but basically what the Dalai Lama says is when you talk about the goal in meditation or the progress along the path or the benefits, what you get out of this, which is really where it becomes marketable, there are definitely goals. There are definitely modes of progress, you know, and really the Buddhist tradition is very clear about charting the stages of a practitioner's progress to get these incredible benefits from their practice. But he says, if you want to check in with how that progress is going, you should do it once every 10 years. And Americans or Western people, I think he says, tend to want to check in on their progress once every 10 minutes. Yeah. I was walking by a boutique in, in uh, Soho, and it, there was a quote on the board outside the boutique by Carrie Fisher, who's Princess Leia, I think. Mm -hmm. And it said, instant gratification takes too long. It, it's going to be hard to market things. And, and you know, yoga, even at, at the end of a yoga class, you do feel some benefits. I think yoga is pretty brilliant because you get a sense of both the instant gratification of it and the long-term benefits of it at the same time. Meditation, you don't always get after you finish every single session. Although, I don't know, I, I'm starting to disagree with myself. I'm starting to look back and say, can I find any meditation sessions that have happened to me in the last year where I don't feel better at the end of the session than I did at the beginning on a very subtle but pervasive level? And I would say there's a few, especially if strong emotion comes up or I'm really stressed out and my mind just gets carried away in that. But most of the time, Almost all the time, I feel more equipped to handle my life compassionately and creatively and awakely after I get it from the meditation. And there's actual people and institutions that have taught me how to do that. And so they are therefore worthy of the support that it takes to keep creating those benefits for people. And so I think it's hard because the instant gratification isn't so much there, but we do need to find ways to talk about it because meditation is starting to make its way into things like corporate environments. And you hear the, the, the lexicon is very different. You have to reinterpret the entire Buddhist language. I'm convinced that you could teach the entire Buddhist path at a hedge fund uh, and just have you know weekly Dharma, which some, some people are starting to teach meditation. I've taught meditation workshops in a corporate environment. You'd have to change the language. And I don't see people being yet that open to, you know, new interpretations of just the lexicon of the Dharma to really have it go into these more power centers of our society. I know it's something that, you know, a lot of people are interested in, but I haven't seen it. And I do think that the voices of who that's selling out, who that's selling out, don't do that, don't do that, are a little bit louder at this point. Well, you, your analogy earlier about the bodegas and different coffee shops in yeah. New York City, if I had to apply that to the Buddhist world, I would say 
a Shambhala Center is like walking into Starbucks okay. and a, a Zen Center is like walking into the 75 cent bodega right. you know like I mean Zen Centers do tend to be like stripped down and you know right, right. Most, or I'm speaking mostly of Japan now but right. um, you know not really much adornment or whatever whereas Shambhala Center seem to I don't know appear to have a lot of upkeep I'm not uh-huh. a Shambhala practitioner but I've studied with a teacher who practices in both the Zen and Shambhala traditions yeah. why do you think you ended up on that Huh. Well, you know, first of all, I think that one of the sucky, sucky things that's happening in the Buddhist world is that people from Buddhist traditions don't know anything about other Buddhist traditions. Every time somebody in the Shambhala tradition calls Theravadan Buddhism or Insight Meditation Hinayana Buddhism, I just not so much want to smack them, but just want to like put a book in front of their like. It's just it's really. Which book would you put in front of them? Probably Loving Kindness by Sharon Salzberg, where she talks. I mean, that's the, the interesting thing is that the Dharma is really kind of congealing slowly, but into a Western form where the way Sharon Salzberg talks about compassion practice is almost identical to what somebody who would nominally say, oh, that's a Mahayana, you know, great vehicle practice would talk about it. And so I try, especially with the ID project is yeah, all about, you know, it's a very ecumenical vision and even beyond Buddhism. So we have people from all different traditions and also artistic and social change traditions who maybe are sympathetic to contemplative practice who are going to come speak. But I think, you know, so I try to be as ecumenical as possible. Family thing, definitely, that the Shambhala and it feels very much like a family sangha um, where everybody really on a on a very deep level, which I don't think is always like my friends who go to Shambhala centers sometimes think people are neurotic. Sometimes it's interesting. Everybody has a different take. Some people love the Shambhala center immediately. Some people think everybody's neurotic. Let me get the hell out of here. Uh, some people think both at the same time. <laughs> Those are actually the people who end up going deeper onto the path. So I, I'm not sure if I would have conquered my early teenage aversion to Shambhala if it hadn't been a family thing. So definitely I have to say that. But I also think, you know, I, I'm really uh, personally connected to the way Sakyam Lipam Rinpoche transmits the Dharma. He's not a flashy Dharma teacher, which is why I think some of the folks who love Trungpa Rinpoche say, ooh, what's, who's this guy who's different? He's incredibly down to earth. He's incredibly kind. And I've never seen another human being with the same level of personal discipline about their awareness and their presence of who's around them and their personal decorum. I've just, I've just never seen that. And he also really encourages people to have, take a very down to earth, very practical, non-mystical approach to Buddhism that was the only way I was going to, you know. It's interesting because... I've almost gotten more interested in the mystical aspects of Buddhism, especially Tibetan Buddhism, which probably excels more than other Buddhist traditions on the mystical or shamanistic aspects. Because he was so down-to-earth that the pragmatism of it made me want to explore the more mystical aspects from a pragmatic standpoint. So it was definitely, you know, connecting with him and, and a couple of other, you know, my main mentors in the Shambhala tradition and I consider teachers Acharya Galen Ferguson, who teaches at Naropa, and Acharya Arawana Hayashi. Um, they're just incredibly intelligent and sweet and caring people. So also, you know, Shambhala has this, this vision of transformative culture. In, in terms of Chogyam Trungpa's le- legacy, sometimes that vision of transformative culture gets translated as we're all going to wear suits, you know, and sit the way Trungpa Rinpoche sat, rather than actually transform our culture, which I think of like, you know, transformative culture, meaning like, how do you, with an appreciative eye, transform the New York art world? 
or the yoga world. You know, so it's not like imposing the founder's vision and transforming the world into that outer manifestation and saying, how do you actually appreciate the culture that already exists and bring enlightened principles to it? Which is what I think, you know, the Shambhala teachings are all about. And uh, I think what happened is that, uh, you know, there was this amazing dynamic teacher, Trung Hermshe, and people were in a little sense, you know, he required a lot of his students but in a little sense, I think people were a little bit overwhelmed by his presence. So when it came time to reinterpret what transformative dharma and transformative culture meant for them, sometimes I get the sense, and this is, again, just personal reflections, that people just thought that, that meant, okay, do what, you know, what would Trungpa do if he had a t-shirt like that? You know, what would Jesus do? And it is, it really does have a sense sometimes that when you're talking about Trungpa Rinpoche, you're talking about like a Jesus figure. Mm. And uh, rather than, what am I going to do <laughs> as an inherent Buddha who was a student of a great master, and now if any of his legacy is going to continue, I have to be the compassionate person. And what culture do I exist in? Because it's probably not going to be Boulder of the 1970s or Halifax of the 1980s. For some people it is, and they have to transform those cultures. For other people, it's like, I'm a musician. How do I transform that culture? And, and then the notion of interdependence is how do all of these little scenes and cultures create a totality? So I do think, you know, it's, it's very much there in uh, the way Sakya Mipam presents things. And I've met some of the, you know, most inspiring and humble individuals in the Shambhala path. And, but I've also, you know, I also consider myself a Dharma punk. I think what Noah Levine and the Dharma punks community has done to bring Buddhism to and bring Buddhism in mass to a large and growing segment of the population that would walk into a traditional Buddhist center, turn around and walk out is, is really amazing. You know, so I think we need, you know, like maybe 400 to 500 more people like Noah Levine and who don't claim to be enlightened. That's the other thing that's really weird is when you, and I think this is a Tibetan Buddhist thing and people who are interested in Tibetan Buddhism, they think that if you're making a claim to be a teacher, you're claiming to be enlightened. I think of being a teacher in the same way, you know, yoga teachers think of being a teacher. I'm going to help you with what I know, and I've been certified to do this, and some people think I'm good at facilitating these things, so I'm not enlightened, I'm on the path. I think the best sort of mode of being a Buddhist teacher for us, rather than thinking about guru, is from an old, did you ever watch the Cosby show? Yeah, um, he, he spent my graduation. Bill Cosby. Yeah. My my mother used to cook for him actually. No way. Yeah, his his family. We're all we are we're really all connected. connected. Six degrees of Bill Cosby. <laughs> the Dharma of um, I won't do my impression of it. But <laughs> there's an episode where Rudy, the youngest daughter, she's it's her second day at fifth grade and she hates her teacher and she hates her class, so she comes home and decides she's not going back and her older sister Vanessa says, Well what what the hell are you gonna do with a what the heck are you gonna do with a fourth grade education? And he goes, Teach third grade. <laughs> So that's the way I think of myself as a, as a Buddhist teacher. And I think we need a lot, as long as the people who are doing that know that they have a fourth grade Buddhist education and don't pretend to be anything else than that, I think we need a lot more people doing that. And then in terms of all the ways people get paid to work with other people's minds, life coaching therapy, God, there's so many different kinds of therapy approaches. I mean, Boulder, I'm sure, in New York. I think we need to, you know, as a Dharma community, provide the support for more people to do that. I've kind of moved away from, uh, for a little while, seeing like, can I actually make a living as a full-time meditation teacher? And it's weird because now that the book comes out, I'm getting more 
offers and I'm going to teach a, a Buddhist course at the New School University. But I've kind of moved away from that just because I'm personally more inspired by writing more and by the community organizing and, you know, kind of being a connector and directing a non-for-profit that the ID Project is representing. But I think we need, you know, a lot more Dharma teachers and who nobody is claiming are enlightened, but who people are supporting the same way they support their therapist or support their life coach. This has been a presentation of BuddhistGeeks.com, copyright 2007. Music in this podcast provided by c for chaos For more great music and writing, visit his blog at www.c4chaos.com. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Stancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.